good to see you guys. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are continuing this week in our study of the book of Judges. We're on the second half uh, of the story of a judge named Samson. Okay, he's Israel's last judge, at least the last one recorded for us in the book of Judges. Uh, and it could probably be said of Samson that he is the worst judge as well, which actually makes a whole lot of sense uh, given the downward spiral that we've seen in the book of Judges, the this, this cycle that we've seen. And what we find is that right from the very beginning in the story of Samson, although he is very physically strong, right? This is what we know. This is what is talked about Samson all the time. He's very physically strong. But what we start to see right from the beginning is that Samson is incredibly weak in so many ways. We're going to talk a little bit about the weakness of Samson. He seems to be controlled by either his weakness for women right, or his weakness that drives him to anger, to vengeance, to violence. We left off last week in the middle of a story at the end of chapter 14, and not surprisingly, we find Samson, he's angry, uh, and he has made a bet. Uh, he's given a riddle to the Philistines that they can't figure out uh, at his wedding ceremony. And so it's a seven-day thing. And so the Philistines, uh, they go to his wife-to-be, uh, and they, they say to her, uh, we need you to coerce the answer to the riddle out of, uh, out of Samson, uh, and if you don't, we will kill you. So she does, and she gives the answer to the Philistines, and at the end of the festivities, uh, then uh, they give the, the answer to Samson, and he is mad. He's mad, and he wants vengeance. So he goes out and he kills 30 of their people and he takes their clothes and he brings the clothes back as payment uh, to the lost bet. But he's still mad. So he doesn't return back to his wife. Instead, he goes back to his parents' house. And what Samson doesn't know, that is what happened when he goes back to his parents' house, the father of his wife-to-be gives her to one of the companions of Samson at the wedding festivities, his best man, Okay. Uh-oh, Samson is not going to be happy about that. So apparently, at, at his parents' house, uh, he takes uh, a few thousand deep breaths. Uh, he, uh, he begins, his anger begins to subside. Maybe he sees things a little bit more clearly. Uh, and he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to my wife, uh, and I'm going to bring with me the modern-day equivalent of like a box of chocolates. Okay, we're in chapter 15 of Judges, verse 1. It says, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he says, I will go into my wife in the chamber. Apparently, he's speaking to the father at this point, And he's saying to the father, I'm going to go into her room and I'm going to sleep with her. <laughs> but her father would not allow him to go in. He would not allow Samson to see his wife. Why? Verse 2. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. But this just Ben Samson uh, out of shape, just in a, in a really bad way. Like he, he, he can't have the woman that was right in his eyes, that he saw that he wanted. He can't have her, so he wants revenge. And he comes up with this plan of vengeance uh, against the Philistines. Uh, and it's a plan that is... Uh, 
rather difficult. Uh, it's a plan that, in my opinion, uh, is probably overly complicated. Uh, he decides that he's going to go out and he's going to capture 300 foxes, live ones, uh, and he's going to tie them in pairs, uh, tail to tail, with a torch in between them. And basically what he's doing is he's, he's going to light 150 moving fires throughout the wheat fields. And remember, he, the time that he goes back to his wife is the time of the wheat harvest. So he wants to hit the Philistines economically and at their food source. And the Philistines, they don't like it. They don't like it, and they find out. They want, want to find, they want to find out who did this, and they want to find out why. They find out the reason. They find out that his wife was given to his best man. And so an angry Philistine mob goes, and he takes, they take the wife, and they take the dad, and they burn them alive. And, of course, that makes Samson angry. And he flies into yet another rage, seeking revenge. Verse 8, and he struck them, it says, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Okay? He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. The meaning of this is that he ruthlessly attacked them. Ruthlessly. We begin to see a pattern, don't we? A pattern that is beginning to develop, escalating violent acts of revenge, one after another, back and forth between the Philistines and Samson. Samson says it very clearly for us in verse 11. 3,000 men of Judah, this is Israel, okay, went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom. That's where Samson is hanging out after all this happened, and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, well, as they did to me, so have I done to them. They started it. It's childish. It's vengeful. But it's also very telling of another weakness that Samson has, that except for his physical strength, there really isn't any difference between Samson and the Philistines. That even though he was called to liberate Israel from the Philistines, called by God to be holy, set apart, if you remember last week, by a Nazarite vow from birth, consecrated wholly to the Lord. But look at the comparison between Samson's reply and the response that the Philistines give to Judah for why they have come into their territory. They have invaded the territory uh, of Judah. And, and so Judah, they go out to them in verse 10. The men of Judah said to the Philistines, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Samson, why are you doing this? Well, as they did to me, I do to them. Same terminology, the same angry, childish response. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. You do something uh, that doesn't make me happy, I'm going to do the same thing to you. This is significant. This is significant because, remember, God has chosen Samson before he was born. God has set him apart from birth under what is called the Nazarite vow. We talked a little bit about that last week. We're going to come back and we're going to circle back to the Nazarite vow in just a little bit because it becomes super important to this story. Notice, too, that it's not just Samson that looks the same as the world around him. Look at the similarities between the Philistines and Israel in the text. It's God's own people, right? After Samson attacks the Philistines and he gets revenge because they killed his wife and her father, well, then he takes off on his own. Uh, and the Philistines, they invade Judah uh, and they, they, they make a raid on this town called Lehi. 
So some of the representatives of Judah, they go and they find him to find out what's going on. Why are you guys doing this? This is verse 10. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did for us. And then Judah rallies 3,000 men. For what purpose? To fight the Philistines? No. And they go, the 3,000 men of Israel from the tribe of Judah, they go and they find Samson. And in verse 12, they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Now remember, Samson is not just an Israelite, one of, one of God's own people. He is God's chosen deliverer to begin delivering Israel from the rule of the Philistines. See, God's plan is to begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The Israelites' plan is to give God's deliverer into the hands of the Philistines. Not only that, but remember that the Philistines had killed one of their own people. They killed uh, Samson's wife, uh, and they killed her father as well because they had aggravated Samson. Now, in the same way, the Israelites betray one of their own, Samson, because he aggravated the Philistines. It's not just irony. Do you notice the comparison? The Israelites are now no different from the people who are surrounding them. They are indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. They bear the name of God, chosen by God, called out from all the rest of the nations to be set apart and to be special to the Lord. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2 says, speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, they may bear the name of God's people. But they would rather live at peace and under the rule of the world around them. They would rather worship their idols than worship God. They would rather cut down their own deliverer than risk confrontation with the world. So the men of Judah, they tie Samson up and they bring him uh, to, the, to the Philistines. And it says in verse 14, when he came to Lehi, as Samson, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. So God undoes what the men of Judah did and the ropes that held Samson then are broken and he is set free. And then this is what he does in verse 15. It says, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he put out his hand and he took it and with it he struck a thousand men. We're going to come back to this one. But for now, the chapter concludes in verse 20, and it says that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years, okay? Now, normally at this point with other judges, uh, when we're given the amount of time that the judge has judged Israel, uh, then usually what follows is the land has rest, uh, the judge dies and is buried. If you remember with Othniel, like he, uh, he judged for 40 years, the land had rest, uh, then Othniel dies. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah dies and is buried. Samson, he judged Israel for 20 years, and then he goes to Gaza. See, there's a break in the pattern, and it's notable. Chapter 16 then actually becomes like an extended version, a more detailed description of the death of this judge, and it gives us more details on Samson's rejection of God's call. 
his rejection of God's call in his life. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says this, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. All right, first of all, it says that one day he went to Gaza. So Samson's hometown is in Zorah. Gaza is 45 miles away, so it wasn't like he just stumbled upon Gaza on a day hike and was like, oh, like Gaza, well, while I'm here, I might as well see the sights. No, he was intentionally going deeper into Philistine territory, intentionally going to a Philistine town, and it's not just some random town 45 miles away, it's their capital. What's he doing there? Is it finally time to be the judge that God has called him to be? To begin rescuing Israel out of the hand of the Philistines? No. When he gets there, he sees a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. And the people of the city, it says, they find out that he's there. They, they set an ambush for him. But it says that Samson, he gets up in the middle of the night. He gets up at midnight. Uh, the ambush apparently is ineffective because in verse 3 of chapter 16, it says that he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay, carried them on his shoulders to Hebron, just, just right up to the top of the hill in front of Hebron, right? 40 miles away. <laughs> 40 miles away. And the details, if you notice in the text, look at the text. It says, uh, of the gates with its doors, two posts, including the bars, He's saying, this is substantial. This was like everything. He took everything up and he put it on his shoulders. The estimated weight of the gates is calculated at probably somewhere at least 5,000 pounds, and he carries them 40 miles. For what reason? <laughs> I mean, as the deliverer, as the judge, doesn't it make sense? Wouldn't it seem fitting that he would go into Philistine territory? that he would go to the capital, that he would rip off the gates of the city, that he would carry them to Hebron, which is in Judah, leaving the city of Gaza exposed. He brings the gates uh, to, to Hebron, to, to Judah, and he says, now is the time. Gaza is exposed. They're defenseless. Look what I did, right? We can do this. Rallies the troops. Let's get going. No. No, nothing like that. He carries 40 miles to Gaza, apparently just because he could, right? Maybe it was to humiliate the Philistines, uh, right, because Hebron's in Judah. Maybe he's trying uh, to embarrass Judah for turning him over to the Philistines, but ultimately it just seems like a show of strength, self-serving egotistical, the opposite of what is to be done as the deliverer of Israel, consistently, consistently rejecting the special purpose that Samson is called to. And now here is where we come to a seemingly radical transition in this story, but this is where everything begins to come together. Chapter 16, verse 4, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah, Okay. Up to this point, what we've seen in Scripture, the author points them out specifically, is that there are other women in Samson's life. 
Other than his mom, the first one that we're, first one that we're told about uh, is early on uh, back in chapter 14. It says that he sees one of the Philistine women, uh, and though his parents are like, that's not a great idea, you, you shouldn't do that. He says, no, get her for me. I like what I see. Get her. Verse 3 of chapter 14 says, but Samson said to, her, to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, notice there is no mention of love. And there is no mention of her name ever. Then again, when he goes to Gaza, he sees a prostitute, no mention of love and no mention of her name. Then we come to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, and her name is Delilah. There is love, and she has a name. Samson loves Delilah. And the Philistine lords, okay, there are five of them. They obviously see this as an opportunity to get to their nemesis. They, they smell fear and they smell weakness. So they come to Delilah and they're like, well, this guy Samson, uh, he's not just strong. He's like superhuman strong, okay? So Delilah, we want you uh, to find out what is this guy's kryptonite, Find out what makes him just like every other man. And, and we're going to pay you lots of money for that. They're prepared to pay her, they say, 1,100 shekels of silver each. Okay, there's five of them. So if she can find out Samson's weakness, his kryptonite, and help deliver him into the Philistine hands, they're going to pay her 5,500 shekels of silver. That is a lot of coin. It's thought to be in the neighborhood of how much you would make back then if you worked for about 550 years. And it obviously is an amount that Delilah couldn't refuse. So she begins to try and find out from Samson the source of his strength. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Okay, every time I get to this part and, and reading the Bible, I'm like, oh, no, Samson, no. Don't do it, don't do it, right? I imagine Delilah, maybe she's waiting for just the right time, waiting for him to be like maybe in a good mood, uh, right? Maybe uh, he's waiting for him to do something that takes a little extra strength, like he uh, opens the pickle jar or something, right? And, right? and she says to him, wow, uh, just out of curiosity, right? Uh, hypothetically speaking, of course, I, how, how could someone restrain you and subdue you? <laughs> and, and at first, Samson lies. He makes up some bogus thing about uh, tying him up with seven undried bowstrings. And so Delilah tests that out. Verses 8 and 9, then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. It doesn't work. Right? It doesn't work. So she goes back to him and says, I can't believe you did that to me. I can't believe you lied to me. And by the way, all that stuff uh, that happened with the fresh bowstrings and tying you up, that was just joking around. Like, you're right. you, you, you can trust me. So what is it really? And three times she asks. And three times Samson lies to her. Now up to this point, Delilah's response has been, I can't believe you would do that. You mocked me. You told me lies. But after the third time, she pulls out all the stops, and her response now is different. Verse 15, and she said to him, 
how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Do you hear what she's saying? She tells Samson that this has turned into something that now I'm starting to maybe believe that you don't love me. Maybe this relationship isn't important to you after all. And she begins to beat him down, it says, beat him down verbally, beat him down. Verse 16, and when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul, says, was vexed to death. And he spills the beans. And this is where I'm like, no, no, Samson. No, no, no. It's, this leads to him being attacked and subdued by the Philistines. Verse 21 says the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, back to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Come on, Samson. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense, does it? Why would he do that? Why would he tell Delilah? That's a really good question, isn't it? Why? Why would he tell Delilah? Well, the text is clear on a couple of reasons. One is that he loved her. Two is that she relentlessly, verbally broke him down. But there seems to be a more underlying reason, the reason that brings uh, a lot of clarity to what is going on. And it has something to do with what we're told back in chapter 13 from the angel to Samson's mom, that Samson would be under this thing called the Nazarite vow, and he would be this from birth. It says, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, okay? We talked a little bit about this last week. Nazarite vow, the word Nazarite is from the Hebrew term which means to consecrate. It's derived from the Hebrew root meaning to separate. Now usually the vow was for like this definite period of time when a man or woman would consecrate themselves to the Lord and for his service. And there was this outward demonstration to the world around them uh, that they were under his service and dedicated to him. And they were under a special vow. That's what it's called. It's called a special vow. It's called that in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 2. It says, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself or herself to the Lord. And then it goes on in that same chapter to detail some of the requirements of the vow. Those who were going to take the vow of a Nazarite, they had to be willing to sacrifice uh, certain aspects of their life for the duration of their pledge. They had to abstain entirely from wine or drinking alcohol of any kind. In fact, they had to abstain from eating grapes or anything that was made from grapes altogether. So, you know, no grape jelly, no raisins, things like that. Uh, they had to abstain entirely uh, from any grape product at all. And there's no touching, not even going near a dead body, okay? And lastly, they were not to cut any hair on their head until the completion of their vow. And right from the beginning of Samson's story, he doesn't just not take the vow seriously. It's like he is going out of his way to break the vow. It says in the beginning of chapter 14 that he and his parents went down to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, it doesn't say what he was doing there in the vineyards, except killing a lion, but his, his presence there is at least suspicious, or why even mention the vineyard? 
Okay? In chapter 14, verse 10, it says that Samson prepared a feast there. This is for uh, his wedding ceremony, the, the week-long, the seven-day-long thing. Uh, he prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. The feast is basically a drinking party. And even when he met Delilah, the place he finds her is called the Sorek Valley, a.k.a. the Valley of the Choicest Vine. What's he doing there? I mean, there seems to be a lot of compelling evidence in the text that points to him being around, if not involved, with grapes or the drinking of the fermented juice of those grapes. And then you don't have the, the, you have the, the don't touch or don't get near the dead bodies. He kills the lion. And then later on, when he, when he goes by it, bees were in there, and he reaches into that carcass, and he gets honey, and he eats it, and he gives it to his parents to eat as well. Gross. <laughs> he kills the thousand Philistines. It says that he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, fresh, okay, from a carcass, and put out his hand and took it. The author, notice, is very careful to point out what kind of jawbone it is fresh and specifically spell out how he reached out his hand and he took it. Samson seems to be going out of his way, intentionally breaking this vow, rejecting the call of God that Samson was given from birth. And Samson knew about this vow. He knew who he was. He knew how he had this vow from birth and the details of it and, and all the things that it entailed. We know this from chapter 16, verse 17. It says, he, that is Samson, told her, Delilah, all his heart, and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. I mean, this is almost word for word what the angel told his mom back in chapter 13. He knew God's call on his life, a call that was given to him divinely before he was even born, a call that was separated him from all other men to be holy, to be pulled from the ordinary into something very special, something that was significant that God had for him. Yet this is not good enough for Samson. As we looked at it, he chased after his own passions instead of pursuing God's call in his life. He's driven by a passion for revenge. He's, dri he's driven by a passion for women. He's driven by a passion for pride to constantly shake loose anything to do with humility in his life. Constantly tried to embrace uh, serving himself and raising himself and his needs and his desires and elevating himself above everybody else in his life, including the call of God upon Samson. He Think about it, he parties with the, with the Philistines. He carouses with the Philistines. He tries to intermarry with them. He lives with them. He does everything with the Philistines except deliver them, except deliver Israel from them. I mean, that's the one thing that he was separated to the service of the Lord for. He tells Delilah the truth. He tells her the last bit of the vow that he hasn't yet broken because he doesn't really want what God wants. He'd rather have her than God. He'd rather be with the Philistines than with God's people. He'd rather keep vows to himself and chase after his desires and the world around him than keep his vow to God as a Nazarite. And so he tells Delilah. And of course, what happens? Of course, what happens? Of course, what he already knows is going to happen, doesn't he? He already knows what's going to happen is that his head is shaved. And the last remaining bit of the vow 
is broken. He tells Delilah because he wants to be cut free from the bonds of God's call in his life, literally cut free from the bonds of of God's call in his life. He wants something other than God. And then what happens next is very interesting. Uh, Having told Delilah about his vow and his hair, and although telling her that if my hair is cut, then I'll, I'll be like than other men. Even though he said that, when he wakes up and his hair is gone, it says in verse 20, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. I don't know, perhaps he thought I've broken the other parts of the vow and I was still strong. Why would this be any different? But it says that he got up to fight the Philistines as before, but his strength had left him. And it wasn't because he had magical hair. He went out to fight just as before. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't have magical hair. His strength had left him because the Lord had left him. And he didn't even know it. The last bit of the special vow he had since birth was broken and the Lord left him and the Philistines capture him and they gouge out his eyes. They bring him to Gaza. They put him in shackles. They put him to hard labor, grinding at the mill in the prison and the only time that he is let out of prison was so that he would entertain them. He's a clown. And in all of this, for the first time in his story, he calls out to God, by name. He's prayed before when he was thirsty, back in chapter 15, but this is the first time that he calls out to God by name, Yahweh, Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, remember me and give me strength one last time. But notice for what? He says that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes, still wanting revenge. And then he asks, let me die with the Philistines. It seems fitting that the guy who lived with the Philistines, he chased after a lifestyle that was indistinguishable from the Philistines, would then die with them too, and God gave him his request. God still used Samson to begin delivering Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. I mean, that was God's plan. But Samson's life is just riddled with missed opportunities. Consequences of foolish behavior, consequences of unrighteous anger, revenge, misdirected passions, and for what? For what? To do the things that he wanted to do, to chase after the things that he thought was good for him. And in so doing, he rejects again and again the calling of God in his life. Samson was chosen by God before birth to be under the Nazarite vow. God says of the Nazarite, that they are holy unto the Lord. That they were set apart from the world to the Lord. Samson was divinely chosen and set apart for God. But he rejected it again and again. Israel was chosen for that as well, to be holy unto the Lord. But they decided again and again to do what was right in their own eyes and rejected their call from God to be set apart for him, divinely chosen and set apart for God. Do you know the same idea, the same terminology is used to describe us as believers? 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says this, He, God, chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, divinely chosen before we were born, divinely chosen even before the earth was born, that we should be what? Holy, set apart for God and blameless before him. A little later in the same letter, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chosen by God, set apart for him, for his purposes, to walk as Jesus walked. This is who we are. And we are tempted, aren't we? We are tempted all the time to deviate from this. But God is always calling every one of us. He's calling us and he's drawing us to be faithful to this calling, always drawing us to experience the goodness, the joy, the satisfied yearning of our soul of total surrender to him and his call in our life. This week I was, uh, I was reading my devotions and I read something that connected with me uh, in such a powerful way, especially in light of my studies on Samson. It's, uh, it's Psalm chapter 16. And the verse that stood out to me, it's very simple and it's very short. Uh, it, it's easy to carry around with me. It's easy to carry around with you. When we're tempted throughout the day to give up on the call of God, it's Psalm 16 verse 2. It's David's speaking. And he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Later in the same psalm, verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He makes known to us the path of life by which we should walk And in his presence, there's fullness of joy and there's pleasures forevermore. The truth is that we can be just like Samson, believing that we know what is good for us and then running after those things, chasing it and prioritizing our own desires and thinking that in that, that we will find life and joy and that those things will be good for us. But the truth is, we can't trust the world around us to determine what is good for us, can we? The truth is we can't even trust ourselves to know what is good for us. So we go back again and again and again to his word and revisit this over and over that apart from him, I have no good. Apart from you, I have no good. And then I pray and I ask the Lord again and again, help me to believe that. Sink it way down deep in my heart and in my mind. Sink it way down deep inside of me. Remind me again and again of it so that I begin to really know it. That God has called us and has set us apart to be his treasure. He's given us our freedom so that we can fully embrace what? What we want to do? To give us freedom so that we can embrace what the world around us is doing? That's not good for us. See, God will accomplish his will just like with Samson. 
but we would be choosing consistently a life riddled with missed opportunities. Choosing a life that has consequences of our foolish behavior, consequences of chasing after what we think is right and good in our own eyes. That is not why we've been given freedom in Christ. We've been given freedom to embrace the goodness of the call of God in our lives and to fully embrace being set apart for him and what he wants to do in us and through us. And apart from that, to remind us again and again that apart from that, there is no good. But maybe you're here this morning and you doubt that. That's part of the temptation, that you kind of believe it. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you have forgotten it. But you feel that call of God in your life to return back to him and his ways, to know that he is good for us to be able to say yes to him. I can tell you that the place to start It's by talking to God. It's by by talking to him and praying to him and telling him, I want to believe. Help me with my unbelief. Help me to know that apart from you, there is no good thing. Help me to taste and see that you're good and that your ways are good and that I was created in Christ Jesus for good works. These are prayers that he loves to answer. And he's working in each and every single one of us again and again to be faithful to that call, to say yes to him. And that's my prayer. I pray for our church. I pray for every single one of us here at this church as followers of Jesus that we would say yes to that call, to embrace the goodness that he has for us and saying yes to that call. Imagine what our church would look like. Imagine what our families would look like to fully embrace the call of God in our lives. Not to be indistinguishable from the world around us. Imagine what our neighborhoods would look like. Imagine what our community would look like. Father, that is our prayer. We want to say yes to you. We want to say yes for everything that you have for us because we know that apart from you, there is no good. We can't trust ourselves for that. We certainly can't trust the world around us. So, Father, help us. Return us back to you. Empower us. Encourage us to be able to say yes to you again and again. Help us. Deliver us from temptation to say no to you. Help us, deliver us from the temptation to again say, say no to those things because we know they're not good for us. And we can trust in you, the God who is good and who has good things and works all things for the good. And it's called us to do those good works in our lives that we can trust you for what truly satisfies our soul. Help us to say yes to that. As we leave here, we will be tempted. We're tempted right now to say no. And we ask, Father, that you help us to say yes. And we give you the praise and the glory for when we do say yes. We thank you so much for this church and for your message and for your word that you give to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.